Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. Working like a dog. Do you like your job? I'd like you to uh, tell your neighbor, uh, give them a sense of it. So five means that you wish you were at work right now. One means that work is the main source of stress and pain in your life right now. So where would you put your job on that scale, five to one? Just let someone around you know kind of where you're at this morning with your job. You can use hand signals if you want. How many fives in the house? Hey, all the retired people, five? No, serious, fives, let me see. All right, four. Oh, man, good. Three, two, one. Okay, all right, we know what we're dealing with this morning. Work matters. Last week, Nick led us through a theology of work because if you're going to spend 40% of your waking hours doing something, it's good to have a framework in which to place it so that it's healthy. And uh, it starts the Christian view of work with God as a worker. Genesis 2-7, it talks about how he formed us from the dust of the earth, and the picture there is of a, a divine with dirt under his fingernails. Genesis 2 verse 3 talks about after he finished his work, he rested, and by the way, that's the power of work, and we're going to talk about rest next week on Mother's Day. So come back for that. But uh, it's this picture of human labor and adherents of other world religions must just look at Christianity sometimes and scratch their heads and say, you mean to tell me you've got a God who works? Yeah. And not only that, this God who works has made us in his image, which means he's created us to be workers and thus elevates all work to this place of dignity and partnership with God. I I love how uh, Frost and Hirsch have put it this way. God prefers to offer us a, a grain and invites us to buy a field and plant the seed. He prefers that we till the soil while he sends the rain. He prefers that we harvest the crop while he sends the sunshine. Why? Because he would rather we become partners with him in creation. Of course, God could simply supply our every need and solve our every problem. We suppose he could have converted the whole world by now, but he prefers partnership to mere accomplishment. Our God invites us into a creative partnership with him. He supplies the earth, the air, the water, the sun, and our strength, and then asks us to work with him. Do you know what this is, by the way? This is the Ikea effect. 
You know, Ikea, you go, you buy a table, you put it together. It's wobbly and weak, and you would never give it to anyone else because it wouldn't work for them. But for you, because you were in partnership with Ikea, it's the fruit of your own labor. That is the best table in the world because you made it. It's the Ikea effect that God blesses us with. So we have this great picture of God working, creating workers, partnership, may up there come down here, human flourishing, and yet all this dignity, you know it, some days brings drudgery. A hard day's night. Why does work sometimes feel so bad? Well, that's a whole different question. That question is about expectations, the value of work. What do we hope to get out of our job? That's what we want to talk about this morning, the value of work. And to do it, we're going to go to a book in the Bible that talks the most about work than any other book. Can you guess which book it is? Ecclesiastes. So we need to set the table here a little bit to understand where the writer of Ecclesiastes is coming from. We don't exactly know who wrote Ecclesiastes. Old Testament scholars call it a fictional autobiography. Some think it was Solomon. Others think it was someone pretending to be Solomon or a man who has great wisdom and experience. And so he wants to give observations on life. But there's two key phrases to understand in Ecclesiastes. The first one, again and again and again, you'll bump into it, under the sun. This is life under the sun. So this is life with no God above and no life beyond. This is the here and now. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below, above only sky. That's the worldview of Ecclesiastes. The here and the now and nothing more. But as he goes on this pursuit for what the meaning of life is under the sun, he keeps bumping into a word, the key word of Ecclesiastes, 38 times. It's the word meaningless or vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And it literally means a wisp of smoke or a mist of cloud. It's like flying in an airplane and you're up above the clouds and those clouds look like so thick and solid you could walk out on the wing and step on them. And would they hold you up? They might look solid, but they will not hold you up. And that's the idea in Ecclesiastes. We go after all these things that look like they might hold us up but we bump into it again and again, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. So how do we operate under the sun when we keep bumping into meaningless? Well, Stephen Jay Gold, the late paleontologist at Harvard, tells us how. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed, so far, to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. Now, these last two sentences are the meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what we do. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom 
and ethical sense. There is no other way. Under the sun, no one above, nothing beyond, we construct the meaning of our lives. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, there's three ways we construct meaning. The first way is to live a cause-based life. Cause. Give your life to something bigger than yourself that will help make the world a better place. The only frustration under the sun in a cause-based life is justice. It's a fiction. I mean, who's to say it's a good cause? And what is good? And is it the will of the majority? Is it the strongest opinion? What is good? So be very careful when you commit your life to a cause. The second way we construct meaning in this life is what we call a pleasure-based life. Ecclesiastes is all about the pleasure-based life. But be careful, because in a pleasure-based life, if all love is is a series of chemical reactions in the brain, there's no real difference between sex and love. I mean, what is love? Be careful, I mean, when you get in a relationship with a person, who lives a pleasure-based life, we might call a narcissist, that can be a very painful relationship. There's a third way to build meaning in our life under the sun, and that's a work-based life. The best definition of the work-based life, someone, one of you sent it to me this last week, an article in The Atlantic, listen to Derek Thompson describe the work-based life. He writes, The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. Homo industrious. Workism. And so today... As we wrestle with the value of work and our expectations around it, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes and we're going to wrestle with this idea. I'm going to read it once and then I want you to read it once out loud. Here's what I want us to leave with today. Work cannot save you, but you can save your work. Together, work cannot save you, but you can save your work. But it tries. And it tries, and it tries work to save you. It makes promises, right? Ecclesiastes says the first thing work will promise you is satisfaction. I mean, not only do you get the paycheck and the provision for your needs, but hopefully at work, you get a place where you can use your passions and your personality. I mean, if you're gonna spend 88,000 hours of awake time in your life at work, You hope you can enjoy it, right? You can speak out loud in these services if you want, right? All right, just stay with me here. Now, ESPN 
surveyed 71 sports mascots a couple of years ago, 71. Here's what they discovered. Of those 71, a third of those mascots have suffered heat stroke. One of them described it like this. When you work, it's like putting on a fur coat, going into a sauna, and doing aerobics. Another third of the 71 mascots have suffered broken bones. The Oriole bird describes a drunken fan attempting to hug him while he was standing on a ledge and pushed him off the ledge, fell 10 feet, and broke both ankles. All 71 tell stories of fans swearing them, cursing them, swearing them out because they're blocking their view. (laughs) And yet, Tom Burgoyne, the longtime Philly fanatic, one of the most popular mascots in all of sports, said this, I get paid to make people laugh and watch games. How great is that? Now, if only we all could have that level of enjoyment in our work. But the teacher says there will be days like this. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is hevel, meaningless. Grief is the word sorrow, tears. You don't need to raise your hand on this one. But how many of you have had work make you cry? It can be rough. The word pain often is translated vexation. It literally means the accumulation of irritants. Work will either make you sad or it'll make you mad. Right? Irritants, like, well, failure. Stay at it long enough, you will show up miserable in an interview. You will fail an audition. You will attempt something new and it will flop. Another kind of irritant, how about uh, the Peter Principle? Incompetence, you will be promoted to a higher level where you finally realize you're in over your head. How about rejection? A time poll a few years ago uncovered the American workforce, 28% of employees will backstab another employee to keep their job. Rejection. How about a great irritant? Boredom. A Gallup poll two years ago, 2,000 American workers, 70% said the main reason I go to this job is for the paycheck. Imagine the morality, or morality, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Morale, thank you. The morale of of a place like that where people are just punching in, punching out. Irritants, work and pain. And then you go to bed, Because of your work, you can't sleep. You're wondering, what's tomorrow going to bring? Grief or vexation? I can't get no satisfaction. But I, and I, and I. Second thing work promises us, recognition. We hope 
that when we work hard and use our skill sets, people are watching and they see it. And how good does it feel, right, when someone says, I see you and the job you're doing, you rock. How good does that feel? Good. Really good. To have someone respect you, to have a good opinion of your work ethic and your skill set, it feels really good. But under the sun, all too often, here's the reality. Again, I saw something heavy under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is heavy, a miserable business. I want to focus on this word alone. To see, to get that kind of recognition, you have to work hard. And sometimes the fruit of that working hard is this aloneness. No son, no family, no brother, no friends. Why? Because in order to get that recognition, to be exceptional and singularly good at his job, he hasn't taken the time to cultivate friendships. Or he stepped on his friends to get to the top. Or he's ignored his family to get the recognition that he wants. I mean, any bicyclists in the room? Ride bikes? Two-word definition of vocational recognition? Floyd Landis. Oh, wait, I'm missing one. There's another one. Who was that? Lance Armstrong. Vocational recognition. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Third thing work promises, contribution. Become part of something bigger than your life. Leave a, leave a legacy. Be remembered in your field. Pass on your financial worth to the next generation. But all too often under the sun, Here's what happens. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is hevel. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Look, if you're a sports hero, you get maybe remembered, what, 100 years? If you're a president of a country, consequentially good, you get remembered two, 300 years. But if there is no one above and nothing beyond under the sun, one day sun burns out and who remembers you? The British writer, perhaps, then, is right when he chose his epitaph to be, I only plowed water. Work makes promises. And it seems that the more you lean on work to make your life meaningful, the more meaninglessness breaks into your life through your work. Why? Work makes promises it cannot keep. Why can't it keep the promises? Two reasons. 
First reason, above ground reason, desire. Here's the engine of work. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter four. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from what? One person's envy of another. That's the engine. This too is a hevel, a chasing after the wind, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. One person's envy of another. What the teacher's saying is this. We work not only to manufacture a product. Even more, we work to manufacture a self. We want to be seen as somebody special or at least as good as you. That's what drives us. We build our identity on work. Our desire for love and respect leans heavy on our work. Let me put it to you this way. Why are you so crushed when other people in your office get public recognition and you don't make the list? Why? Are you so disappointed when someone else gets selected to do the task which you know you could do better? It hurts. Why? Could it be that we are our work? We are our title. Parker Palmer is a writer, and um, he was asked to be the president of a college, and he planned to take the job, but he's a Quaker, and the Quakers have this process. We call them small groups here at Waterstone, by the way. They call it the clearness committee, which says when you're about to make a life-changing big decision, you gather 12 friends whose job, listen, is not to give advice but for several hours to ask questions to get to the point of clearness. Parker sat down with his clearness committee and the first person asked, what would you most like about being president? Parker said, well, I'll tell you what I would not like. I would not like having to give up my teaching and my writing and I would not like the politics of the presidency. I mean, you never know who your friends really are and I can tell you this, I would not like having the glad hand people I don't even respect just to get their money for the institution. The person interrupted, Parker, can I remind you that I asked you what would you like about being the president? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm getting to that and then went on to list a few more things. He wouldn't like about the job. Someone else interrupts. Parker, what would you like about being president? There was a long pause. And then Parker said, I would like seeing my picture in the paper with the word president under it. (laughs) And another long pause. Someone finally said, Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture into the paper? desire. Our heart has gaping holes that we want to fill with love and respect, and we want our jobs to do it. 
Second reason that our job can't save us is, I don't know how to say this like easily, death. I'm gonna put the verses back up. These are just such classic verses, I'll let you read them again, but I wanna tell you a story that highlights these verses. Coleman Mockler is considered today in business classrooms across universities uh, as one of the most effective CEOs who's ever lived. Coleman Mockler. A Harvard Business School graduate with an MBA, he had gone to work for Gillette Corporation and steadily worked his way up the ladder to CEO. Although Gillette Company was already 75 years old, Coleman took the company to new heights. Under his management, they came to dominate the market. After 16 years as CEO, Coleman was at the top of the world. Forbes magazine had just put him on the cover of their next issue, celebrating his leadership and success. The magazine wouldn't hit the newsstands for another week, but on the morning of July 20, uh, January 25th, 1991, they had sent him an advanced copy to review. The rest of the executives literally applauded him as he carried the copy of Forbes back to his office. Decades of hard work had brought him to this point. He had beaten back three hostile takeover bids. He'd increased the value of the stock 50-fold, and with millions in the bank, he had just announced that he would be retiring in a few months. But there was one thing that made it an unexpected day. With the staff applauding, Coleman walked down the hall, stepped into his office, shut the door, and crumpled to the floor. Within moments, he was dead of a massive heart attack, still clutching Forbes magazine that featured him on the cover, dead at 61 years of age. You can make it, but you can't keep it. Work makes promises, satisfaction, recognition, contribution, but it can't keep those promises. Why? Because work can't give you the deepest desires of your heart, and then you die. You leave it all behind. So, if work can't save you, how can you save your work and squeeze the value that God wants us to have from our work. Three ways, and these will be familiar to you. We talk about them here at Waterstone all the time. We call them rhythms. There's the rhythm of restore. Restore is seeing the up there come down here. Restore is partnering with God for human flourishing in a broken, fallen world. I would encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and listen to Nick's message about the theology of work, because it was all about this restore rhythm and how we partner with God to bring the up there down here. Now, Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 3. He writes this, and this is, I, this, is, this is the value of work. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working, say it with me, for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance, say it with me, from the Lord as a reward. Last line together again, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
God is boss. We work for him. Do you know what that means? That means you don't have a career. It means you don't have a job. You have a calling. And when you understand that you have a calling to partner with God in the renewal and restoration of the world, there's value in that. Emma Daniels Gray died on June 8, 2009. Her obituary made the Washington Post. She was called in the obituary the title taken from the White House Registry of Employees, charwoman. Charwoman is old English for housekeeper. Emma Daniel Gray was the housekeeper under the watch of six American presidents. She cleaned the Oval Office. Well, Emma Daniel Gray made no secret that she was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And the obituary mentions how that she used to stand behind the chair of the most powerful man in the world and pray. And she would pray for God to bless him and pray for God to protect him and pray for God to give him wisdom. And I ask you, who in the heck was running the country for those 24 years? Mm -hmm. We work to partner with God in the restoration, the up there, come down here in this world. Second reason we work is to neighbor. Now, I wanna say two things briefly about neighboring. First, when you go to work to neighbor, you believe the gospel at work. What does that mean? That means, believing the gospel, that you accept that Jesus died for your sins and you are clean, you are forgiven. There is nothing between you and God and you have full relationship. You are loved and accepted. That's the gospel. The gospel means that Jesus walked out of his grave and then one day, like him, you too will have a physical body that you will enjoy with God forever and ever. You have forgiveness of sins. You have eternal life. That means you believe the gospel. So what does it mean to believe the gospel at work? It means that you don't lean on your work to get your love and respect. You lean on the one whose opinion of you is the only one that counts. You believe the gospel, that you are loved and accepted, so you don't need your work to give you the verdicts that you so desperately crave. You've got the verdict. Jesus loves you. Your name is written on the palms of the Father. That's where you lean. That's your identity. You don't need your work to be your main source of identity. So you believe the gospel. By the way, if you're here this morning, you're checking out this Christianity thing, that can be yours right now just by saying to Jesus in the quietness of your heart, Jesus, I need you. I do believe. I believe you forgive my sins. You died on the cross. I believe that you walked out of your own grave so that I can have eternal life. I believe. Make me a new person. You can say that right now and walk out of here a new person. Do it. You believe the gospel at work. But you also bring the gospel to work. And you practice this thing we call neighboring. What is neighboring? Praying for the people you work with. It's funny, I've, 
after the last service, I was out in the hub. Guy walks up to me, pulls out his phone and said, do you see this list? These are all the people I work with. You know what I do with this list? Every day before I get out of my car and walk in the office, I say, Jesus, and I read their names and I say, help them, save them, reveal yourself to I was blown away. That's neighboring. Do you keep a list? Keep a list of the people you work with and you pray weekly, daily. It's a discipline. And you say, God, show favor on them. Bless them. Reveal yourself to them. And you pray with Paul, like Paul the apostle used to pray. Lord, give me an open door. Just give me an open door to share about the hope that I have. So you pray. Second thing, you engage. We talk about this, right? Our lives unfold one conversation at a time. And what you want to do is be in the other chair for some of those conversations. You ask good questions and you listen. But you engage in conversation and see what happens. And then third, you invite them. You invite them out for coffee. You invite them to the break room. You, you invite them to your table at home. You invite them to Alpha here at Waterstone or uh, our Easter service, some kind of event where you know the gospel is going to be preached. You invite them. I want to show you a verse in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul puts value on this idea of neighboring. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Do you see the level that Paul puts this idea of making friends? So often we get caught up in this, well, here's how I evaluate my job. What do I make? What, what's the pay? How convenient is it? Schedule and commute. And then maybe some down here we, we think about, well, maybe the people we work with, that's important. What does Paul do? God has sovereignly placed you at a company, at a place, at a position where the people around you, he wants to have them experience what it's like to have Jesus as a friend through you. That's really important. I want to say, he wants them to experience what it's like to have Jesus as a friend through you. And that's as important as what you make. That's as important as the convenience of your work. It is. People matter at work. And so one of the things you should be constantly evaluating is not only am I making friends, but what's my friendship flourish potential here? As you think about changing jobs, that has to factor in the influence that you're having. Last thing, so we restore, we neighbor, and we transform. We are transformed. You go to work, walking in, saying to God, okay, God, what do you want to work on in my heart today? <laughs> I mean, you won't learn patience from a book. You will learn patience from a frozen computer a jammed copy machine, or again having to talk to that guy with coffee breath that triggers your gag reflex. That's where you learn patience. Where are you gonna learn perseverance? You're gonna learn it by having to change that diaper again five minutes later. Or you're gonna have to do that homework assignment that for the life of you, you can't figure out why this teacher is persecuting you. Or you're gonna have to have that gut-wrenching conversation with your boss again because you just can't get on the same page. Perseverance, 
the work is a laboratory of spiritual development. Dallas Willard, great USC philosopher, One who does not know this way of job discipleship by experience cannot begin to imagine what release and help and joy there is in it. If we restrict our discipleship to special religious times, the majority of our waking hours will be isolated from the manifest presence of the kingdom in our lives. To not find your job to be the primary place of discipleship is to automatically exclude a major part of it. If not most of you waking out your waking hours from life with him, the gospel turns your work into a spiritual formation training center. Your job cannot save you, but you can save your job by walking into it with the restore rhythm. God, I'm partnering with you, you're my boss. How are we going to pursue human flourishing today? By walking into it, neighboring, God, I know that you want these coworkers to experience what friendship with Jesus is like through me. And God, I know we're walking in together today. There's some part of my human heart you want to work on. What's it going to be today? Our job can't save us, but we can save our job. Are you in? You can talk. Are you in? Let's pray it. Let's pray it home. And then a few announcements. And then we're going to have something called a walking taco. All right? Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our vocations and occupations as woven into your work in this world this week. For mothers and fathers at home who care for children, for those whose labor forms our common life in this city, this nation, and the world, for those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce, for those whose creative gifts nourish us all, for those whose work takes them to the most broken and hurting and desperate for those whose callings take them into the academy, for those who long for employment that satisfies their souls and serves you. For each one of us, we pray your mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is holy to you. And Lord, give us eyes to see it's worship. And so we give ourselves again to you in and through our work. In Jesus' name, amen.